Welcome to the Empowering Midlife Wellness Podcast, where we talk about everything to do with midlife women's wellness and creating the best second half of life. I'm your host, Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. I'm a board-certified gynecologist, certified menopause practitioner and hormone replacement specialist, as well as an ICF-certified life and leadership coach and lots of other things. So if you want to check me out and learn about my private practice and other offerings, my website is www www.drsusan.com. That's D-R-S-U-S-A-N.com. It's my commitment to stay neutral by not accepting advertising dollars from sponsors. So all of these episodes are offered freely. And the best way that you can help this podcast is to share it with your friends, leave a positive review, and also keep in mind this is simultaneously posted in video format on YouTube, where you can find me by searching for Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. This week on Empowering Midlife Wellness, I'm talking about Alzheimer's disease and specifically what we could do now to hopefully prevent it later, including lifestyle changes, possibly hormone replacement, and some other things that you might not have thought about. Hi friends, and welcome to this week's episode. You know, I don't think there's probably one of you listening who has not had personal experience with Alzheimer's disease of one sort or another. I can't tell you the number of patients who I see who are working pretty much full time taking care of a parent or a loved one with this awful disease. Most of us know it's the most common type of dementia, usually affects people over 65 but about 10% of cases are actually in younger patients. So frequently, those of us in our age group have parents in that age group. My mom, for example, who's almost 90, has some early cognitive decline, probably going to be diagnosed as Alzheimer's. My grandmother spent the last 10 years of her life in a state where she couldn't recognize her own children. Uh, This is something that cuts really close to home. And so we do not have a cure for Alzheimer's disease. But this is a perfect example of a disease that we need to really focus on prevention because that's all we can do at this point. And there are actually things that we can do to reduce our risk of Alzheimer's disease. And I'm going to talk to you about those today because the time to start is now, 10, 20, 30 years before this disease might hit us. So just backing up a little bit, I think all of us are familiar with what Alzheimer's disease is, but just as a little bit of background, it was first named early in the 1900s by a physician of that name who was a psychiatrist and he was taking care of a particular patient who was in a mental hospital. At that time, those were basically asylums. And this particular patient was showing all the signs that we now recognize as Alzheimer's, memory loss, mood changes. She would have anger outbursts, eventually degenerated into a pretty vegetative state. And so he biopsied her brain after her death and found this massive stuff that we now call amyloid plaques and these tangles of neurons that are now called tau tangles. So that became the hallmark of the disease. It's an interesting story because really up until now, uh, the thought is that that's what causes the dementia is this massive sticky stuff in the brain. But a more recent thought is that might not be the cause but it might be what actually happens after years of decreased blood flow to the brain. Because one of the things that we know 
for sure can decrease our risk of Alzheimer's disease or frankly any type of dementia are things that increase blood flow to the brain. And so these are behavioral changes that when I tell you what they are, they sound very much like the behavioral changes that we would want for any type of healthy life. For example, exercising has been associated with decreased risk of cognitive decline and even Alzheimer's and especially having high muscle mass which is really interesting, but has shown to be true in a number of studies, not just high muscle mass, but strength measured by things like a grip test or you know how well you can take the lid off a jar. So do those things cause Alzheimer's? Probably not, but they're associated with increased blood flow to the brain. One would think if you're exercising more, you're gonna be healthy in a number of other ways. You'll be using your brain more, you'll be more active, therefore you will have better blood flow to the brain. And you can see how this virtuous cycle can develop. So exercise, particularly strength and muscle mass, seem to be very closely associated with a healthy brain. Not dissimilar, having normal blood pressure and normal blood sugar are really important because patients with high blood pressure, diabetes, and even insulin resistance, which of course we know now is a pre-diabetic condition, have a higher risk of dementia including Alzheimer's disease when we get older. Sleep deprivation, also associated with dementia. Now, that's a really interesting one because uh, I've talked to you a lot about my aura ring before. I'm wearing it right now. Monitoring sleep is really interesting because you might think you know how much you sleep, like I thought I knew, but actually looking at the quality of your sleep is really important because it's actually the deep sleep that is really important for brain regeneration. So during the time of deep sleep, which might be just an hour or two a night, if it's really good, sometimes I get less than that, but an hour or two a night is what we would ideally want, we regenerate our brain. And so without that, of course, we don't have the opportunity to regenerate our brain, and there the cycle goes. So sleeping well, healthy lifestyle, many, many ways that has so many benefits for our heart, our health in general, and specifically for reducing Alzheimer's risk. So those are lifestyle changes that we want to adopt for a number of reasons, but let's just add another one to the list. Now, depression is also associated with Alzheimer's. If you have depression, of course, we want you to feel better and please get treated, but having prolonged untreated depression seems to be associated with the disease. Other things like stroke or head injury, now we can't prevent those, but we can certainly do things to reduce our risk wear a helmet when you're on a bicycle, don't text and drive. I mean, these are obvious things, right? But we don't always think about what the long-term implications of those might be. We do not want to get a head injury for tons of reasons. And one of them is it's associated with a higher risk of dementia when we get older. These are things I'm thinking about now. I'm 56 and I do not want to have cognitive decline. So all of those things might sound very obvious, but sometimes it can put a fire under you to hear that they're associated with more things than you possibly thought. So all of those things are things that you can do yourself. Another thing that you might wonder, is there anything that I can take or eat, any type of supplement that might reduce my risk of dementia? And actually there is some pretty powerful evidence that a couple of supplements are potentially helpful. One of them is fish oil which has been touted for so many benefits. I made a video about that uh, a year or so ago and talking mainly about how fish oil can definitely lower our triglycerides. So maybe that's the mechanism by which this takes place. But 
taking a thousand milligrams or more, so one to two thousand milligrams of DHA and EPA together every day, significantly helps our brain. And so why is that? Well, maybe it's because of the triglycerides being reduced. Basically anything that helps your heart also helps your brain because it helps with blood flow. And also because omega-3 fatty acids are very intimately involved in the neurologic process in general. That's a very short version. So one to 2,000 milligrams of DHA plus the EPA. So if you look at the back of a bottle, I'll show you the one that I take. Uh, this particular one has more than 600 milligrams in each capsule, so obviously two of those a day would be more than 1,200 milligrams, so that's what I do. Uh, so in the short term, while we're figuring out more about this, we know there are other benefits of taking fish oil, so that's a pretty easy thing to do. And then another important lab test, I mentioned this last week regarding cardiac health, is this particular protein called homocysteine. So we really want homocysteine to be low. Now we know it's associated with heart disease and stroke when it's high, but turns out it's also associated with dementia. So the typical lab test is going to check homocysteine and it will say if it's less than 15, you're good. But we actually want it to be even lower than that. So many neurobiologists want it to be less than 10, for example. So I want your homocysteine to be as low as possible. And let's look at 10 as the cutoff, not 15. So if your homocysteine is 14, that's really too high. <laughs> Actually, even if it's 11, that's really too high. The good news is lowering it is really easy. All we need to do is take a methylated B vitamin. So I'll show you the one that I take. I would take one of those a day and then check it again in a few months and see if it's back to normal. And if it's not, then you could go up on the dose of that methylated B vitamin. So pretty good evidence that methylated B vitamins, which are safe and good for you in lots of other ways, and fish oil are two things that are good to take. Another one, a little bit less science behind this, is choline. So specifically, citacholine, which is available in 500 milligram tablets. You can get that from Amazon. Again, has been shown to be neuroprotective. So if you ask a neurobiologist, they're gonna tell you they're taking all this stuff because it's harmless and could potentially be very beneficial. Uh, choline, and then the other one is creatine. So creatine, Typically, you'd think of as bodybuilders taking it, and they do uh, because it's a protein, it's an amino acid that uh, can be used for increasing muscle mass, so it's got some other benefits, but typically five grams would be in a scoop. You mix it with water, uh, and that has been shown to be neuroprotective, not specifically for dementia, but it helps the brain recover from any type of brain injury. So if you think about it, if we're practicing preventative medicine, we don't know when we might have a brain injury, like a stroke, car accident, fall off our bike, something like that. So having that in our system is a good idea. So I'm gonna take that as well, because it's good for you in lots of ways and it's not harmful, because waiting for 30 years for us to find out the answer to this question is not a good idea, because this is the 30 years that we have. <laughs> so. We want to do what we can, especially if it's A, harmless, B, probably beneficial, and C, good for lots of other things. So all of the things I'm talking about fall into those categories. And let me go back to my favorite topic, which is hormone replacement. Now that one is just, let's say, controversial to say the least. A little bit of history about the association of estrogen and Alzheimer's. 
Well, it's been a pretty obvious thing to look at because of the fact that two-thirds of Alzheimer's cases occur in women, and that is if we take out the fact that we live longer and all the other factors, just simply being a woman increases your risk of Alzheimer's. So naturally, scientists looked at that fact and thought, well, what is it that women have or don't have that could increase that risk? So if you take a menopausal woman as we now all know, who is not treated with hormones, her estrogen level is going to be something right around zero. Now, a man of the same age is going to have an estrogen that's much higher because, as you recall, testosterone is converted into estradiol. That's the primary estrogen that we're talking about here. So an 80-year-old man, for example, is going to be making some testosterone, and some of it will be converted into estradiol, so his estrogen level is going to be much higher than a woman of the same age, unless she's taking hormone replacement. So for many, many years, we knew as doctors, I was taught this as a fact that was irrefutable, that estrogen reduced the risk of Alzheimer's. And so we all were taught this and it was backed up by numerous, almost countless studies showing that estrogen is neuroprotective, lots of studies in the lab on cells in a Petri dish, lots of studies on animals. Also some studies in humans, all of them showed the same thing, pretty much, which is that estrogen seemed to be neuroprotective. And as far as we could tell, would it decrease the risk of Alzheimer's disease? Now, then came 2002, which is when the Women's Health Initiative study was reported. And the, the big part of it that we always talk about that was the hormone replacement, looking at uh, breast cancer, heart disease, stroke. We've talked that part of it to death. But there was another arm of that study. In fact, there were several arms of this very huge study called the Women's Health Initiative Memory Study. And in that study, that part of the study, they reported an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, which was very confusing to all of us who had for many, many years been taught the opposite. But quite similar to the other arm of the study, now looking into it more, there was a lot of factors that possibly led to that finding. One is that, of course, they were taking a drug we don't use anymore, the horse urine, Premarin, and Provera, which is a chemical progesterone lookalike. Now we know that the Provera is what caused breast cancer in that part of the study. We know that taking estrogen by mouth was what was responsible for the blood clotting issues. So a lot of factors that could also complicate the memory loss, Alzheimer's arm of the study. And then furthermore, as we know from the part of the study that we're more familiar with, they were giving these hormones to women, in this case, who were 65 and older, who had not taken hormones before, and they were a group of rather unhealthy women. So lots of things that make it different than you especially women aged 50 to 55, when they're started on hormone replacement, even in the Women's Health Initiative study, showed no increased risk in Alzheimer's. But they, the study only continued for less than eight years, so it isn't really particularly meaningful, in my opinion. Because one of the difficult things about studying this disease is that to have a really good study, you would have to recruit thousands of women aged 50-ish and then follow them for 30 or 40 years which is impossible, and it would cost like bajillions of dollars that nobody would ever pay for. And they'd have to be randomized to either take a placebo pill or something else, estrogen, progesterone, probably. And then they would have to take it religiously during that 30, 40 year study. 
And meanwhile, someone would have to be collecting all the data and, and pay for it. So that's never going to happen. Halfway through the study, the drugs that were being used would no longer even be drugs that we use, which is similar to what happened with the Women's Health Initiative. By the time it was done and looked at, that drug was obsolete. So lots of reasons why that's just not practical to do and why it's very difficult to establish causality when we're looking at Alzheimer's because the progression from, say, 50, when we're talking about estrogen loss, to disease onset, which might be at age 80, 85, 35 years of progression, a lot of stuff happens, and how do we know what causes what? Well, we don't. We have to kind of use our common sense in a way. Um, God forbid we use our common sense, right? But we don't always have what's called a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard for finding out what causes what. Now, a randomized controlled trial would be where you take a group of patients, and then they are randomly assigned to either one group or another group, they don't know what they're taking. They're, they have to be blinded to what they're taking because otherwise, for example, if I know I'm being given a placebo, I'm, I'm going to have thoughts about that that will change the way I report my symptoms. And you couldn't do that anyway because if patients are having hot flashes and night sweats and they're given a placebo, they're not going to get better. And if they're given the real medicine, they'll get better. So they're going to find out what they're taking pretty quickly, which would make the study not useful. So just a lot of reasons why we're never going to have a good study that meets that criteria. So the studies that we're mostly using when we're talking about Alzheimer's and what causes it are what are called epidemiologic studies. So rather than starting a group of people and putting them on a treatment and then seeing what happens, it's looking backwards in time. So for example, you get a whole bunch of medical records and you sit through them and you look at a bunch of 80-year-olds and then ask some questions or look at their medical records about what they took in the past and then try to see what symptoms they have in common. And, and that's the best we can do. And there's nothing bad about that kind of study, but we do have to realize that it has a lot of limitations. So often it will suggest that two things are linked together, but you can't establish that one caused the other because there could be a hundred other reasons. I'll just make up a really silly example. For example, you could probably create a study that showed that driving a Mercedes gave you a higher risk of Alzheimer's. I don't know if this would actually happen in a study, but just say, for example, people who drive a Mercedes might get Alzheimer's more often than people who drive a cheaper vehicle because why? Well, we know it's not because of the car, right? Of course, I'm being silly, but that's almost what some of these studies suggest, something, a ridiculous causation that has nothing to do with what's actually true. So maybe the reason why people with a Mercedes get more Alzheimer's is because they've got more access to resources, because they're more financially well-equipped, and so they go to the doctor more, they live longer because they've got better resources, they get diagnosed early because they go to the doctor, etc. So you can see how, that's a silly example, but you can see how you really cannot establish causation in those type of studies. So speaking of hormone replacement and epidemiologic studies, there was a study published just a week or two ago in the British Medical Journal. Uh, it was actually a European study that suggested that taking estrogen and some type of progestin, again, it wasn't progesterone, it was some sort of synthetic progestin, but different ones. Of course, they were different ones because in this type of study, they can't tell you what to take. They can only look back at what you did take. It's very confusing. So people taking different kinds of estrogen and different kinds of progestin for a certain number of years, uh, they looked back and according to the study suggested that there was an increased risk 
of Alzheimer's disease in patients who took estrogen. And there's all kinds of things wrong with that study. So the media, you know, grabs onto those things and then will report something. You have to be really careful when you hear this stuff. Like, for example, I heard last week, estrogen increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And that's absolutely not even what the author said. In fact, they very clearly stated at the end, we're not suggesting that this proves causation, because of course we can't do that. It basically was just showing that, hey, we need more research. I mean, some of it just wasn't even plausible. <laughs> like taking estrogen for a year could increase your risk of Alzheimer's. Of course, it couldn't possibly do that because some women produce estrogen until they're 58 and some stop producing it when they're 48. So some of it made no sense at all. But um, just to say, we have to be really careful when we hear those type of headlines because you all remember what happened when we believed those headlines back in 2002. It really was a crisis for women's health. There are lots and lots of studies showing that Alzheimer's is decreased with estrogen. And there's a few that show that it was increased. And then there's a whole bunch that shows there's no difference. So whenever we have studies that are contradictory, all that means is we need to do more research. It's just unclear. But if we go back to the common sense idea, there's a lot of common sense that would suggest that estrogen is neuroprotective. So at this point, I'm going with my common sense. So lots and lots of studies suggest that this is true. And then just in your life, if you take estrogen, certainly in mine, cognitive improvement when I'm on estrogen, I can think better, my memory's better. Lots of studies have showed that hormone replacement helps with short-term memory, not talking about dementia, but just in the short-term. Hey, and maybe that's because we're sleeping better. Maybe it's because we're feeling better about ourselves. Again, we don't know the reason. Uh, what I can tell you is that my patients taking estrogen have much better cognitive function and they will generally all say that. And I've certainly experienced that myself. So, so many interesting things regarding hormone replacement. Another one is that, you know, the original idea that I was talking about that Alzheimer's was caused by this sticky stuff in the brain, amyloid plaques and the tau tangles of what they're called. And now we're thinking that maybe it's actually a decrease in blood flow that's the instigating factor. So I mentioned that already. Well, if it's a blood flow issue, then all kinds of factors could compound that when we're taking oral estrogen. Remember, taking estrogen by mouth increases the risk of blood clotting. But now we're doing transdermal estrogen and nobody's really studied that yet. So, so many factors that we have yet to unearth. But in the meantime, I think certainly I am going to continue taking my estrogen long-term until we get some better information because I don't want to wait 30 years for this to become very clear in science, which I bet you lunch will happen. By that time, I've already suffered damage to my brain and I don't want that to happen. So certainly taking estrogen long-term, we don't have many studies about because again, we'd have to do studies that lasted 30 years and no one's gonna do that. So basically, we have to use our common sense. And common sense would indicate that it's a good idea to stay on your estrogen. And perhaps at this point, it's something to think carefully about starting on estrogen when you're over 65, especially if you've got other health issues that put you at higher risk of dementia, like high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, you're not active, etc. And maybe address those things first. So lots and lots of reasons to clean up our lifestyle. And then another little factor is that we cannot change our genes. 
And there is a particular genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's that is one of the factors that can increase our risk. So last time I was talking about blood tests to determine our risk of heart disease. And one of those blood tests, the APOE test, is also very important for Alzheimer's risk. So a little bit about that. And I do recommend if you have an opportunity, everyone should know their APOE gene status. Uh, so you do this test and it tells you what your genetic risk is uh, for Alzheimer's. Uh, the way it's reported is there's three different potential genes. They're called E2, E3, and E4. And just to make it a little bit more interesting, we have two copies of each of those. So we could be, for example, E2E2, or we could be E2E3, or any combination, you get it. Well, the E2 variant is associated with a decreased risk of Alzheimer's, so that's exciting. The E3 variant is what most people have. That's what I have. I've got E3E3, which is the most common, most typical, and that gives us a basically average risk of Alzheimer's. And then the E4 variant is associated with a pretty significant increased risk of Alzheimer's, especially if you've got two copies of the E4, E4, E4. Now, you might say, well, shoot, I don't want to do that test because I do not want to find out that I have that E4 situation. And my suggestion would be it's actually a really good idea to find out because there's so many things that you can do that will put a fire under you, I'm guessing, to fix all those other things in your lifestyle that could be increasing your risk. Because if you do have the E4 gene, even if you've got the double copy, it does not mean that you will get Alzheimer's. It just means that your risk is increased. So plenty of people have the double copy of E4 and never get Alzheimer's. It just means that your risk is increased. So it'd be a really good idea to exercise, lift weights, keep your blood sugar down, keep your weight down, make sure your blood pressure is normal, take care of your head, <laughs> try not to have a stroke. All of these things that we do have some agency over. So I think that's a really good idea to check. And if you do have the E4 gene, I just had a patient last week, actually it was a male patient who found out that he had the E4 gene. And he was actually very grateful because he is literally going to put a fire under his health and he didn't need to lose weight. His blood pressure was a little elevated. His sugar was a little elevated. Now, none of these things were independently particularly scary on their own. But there were a lot of little areas of room for improvement and he'd just been kind of putting it off and so now he's going to really go after that and hey that's going to reduce his risk of heart disease and just generally improve his health span overall so i think it's a really fantastic idea to do so just ask your doctor to do that test it's widely available and it's not very expensive i think we should all know what that is and one of the great things as i mentioned that'll come from finding out is that will really encourage you to put some lifestyle changes into practice that'll help you in so many different ways and then last but not least using our brain seems to decrease the risk of all types of dementia including alzheimer's so there's some interesting studies suggesting that people who retire early have a higher incidence of alzheimer's now of course that's not because of retiring early, that's because a lot of people just kind of do nothing and they stop using their brain and maybe stop socializing and those things lead in a bad direction. So if you retire early and keep really busy and keep active, of course, that's not the case. But using our brains, not just for, say, reading a book or doing crossword puzzles. Now, that's also useful. But using our brain in terms of movement. So movements that require you know quick changes in particular, like tennis or ping pong or 
riding a mountain bike on a bumpy surface or even walking on an uneven surface. These are things that require our brain to be continuously engaged. Different than say, riding your bike on a stationary train or watching TV. Now that's gonna be good cardio, but it's really not engaging your brain. So we wanna do a lot of different activities that engage our brain, including ones that include movement and read a book and do crossword puzzles and all of those things that keep our brain active. Because uh, one of the things that you see with dementia, specifically with Alzheimer's, is parts of the brain actually shrink. And using our brain is associated with better brain volume. One of the reasons why having higher education is associated with a lower risk of Alzheimer's, probably because we're coming into our older years with just a bigger brain. So all of these things are actionable. I mean, we can start that now in our 50s and set up a much healthier 85-year-old version of ourselves. So that is my two cents about Alzheimer's. We don't want it. It's terrible. It's in my family. I know it's in a lot of your families. And so we cannot treat it. The treatments for it currently are not very good. And so it really behooves us to do everything we can to prevent it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. If you did, please don't forget to subscribe, share it with your friends, and I can't wait to see you next week. Mm -hmm.